This episode is brought to you by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, the only study Bible built on biblical theology. Marvel at the big story and savor every detail. Learn more at www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Hey, brother, do you still believe in one another? Welcome to episode 104 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, yo. What's going on? Jesse, today is a glorious, glorious fall day in New Hampshire, and I know we try to avoid the Reformed Weathercast. But it's been like a like a heat wave and like longer into the fall than usual. And I know like we're not technically to fall, but it was like 40 degrees when I woke up. I had to put on a hooded sweater. It, like you could smell wood furnaces in the air. It was just it's it's that time of year, and I love everything about it. That first donning of the hoodie is always a beautiful thing. But you yeah. better enjoy it because this is your one day of fall. Yeah, we're gonna have like a foot and a half of snow tomorrow. Is is the way it usually goes down. But the weather actually is a really good segue into my denial for this okay. week, which I'm just going to start off with. Let's do it. I want to deny against arc jokes. Now, this may come out as just a total old man rant, but we've been getting a lot of rain here. And okay. so the low hanging fruit is always to make a joke about arcs. We've all done it before. It's easy. The gopher wood, Noah style, arc building, floating around. But the more I think about this, it bothers me for two reasons. One, because... It's just too easy. Like, how, how can this really be funny anymore, especially among Christians? Yeah. It, and two, the, on the more serious side, I was thinking, but when we joke about building an ark, we're basically joking about the fact that that was, it's an outmooted thing now because of the promise God has made to us to not destroy the earth again by flood. Yeah. So it just seems to me kind of not only unnecessary, but also unnecessary. Yeah. Is that an old man rant? No, it's not. I, I mean... <laughs> I've actually become more and more convicted about like theological joking in general. Yeah, I hear that. Which maybe means that our podcast is going to be a lot more boring, but um, I don't think it will. I think we we tend to uh, be cautious enough on those. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's like my social media interactions, but it just seems like a lot of times we take the things about God, the the things of God, particularly in like baptism. Right. Like I just have lost all interest in like baptism memes i agree they just seem irreverent they just seem like they're taking a really serious a serious point and a serious thing and making them light so i think maybe it's kind of in that same vein it is because i was thinking of it exactly in that same stream ah no pun intended um in terms of covenant and so that that is a part of the covenant so i just am getting old and i think that probably it is a mark of our show getting boring if we have to explain how it's not going to be boring (laughs) yeah maybe yeah. <laughs> Let's go with denials then first, since now I feel like I'm an old man shaking my fist, telling the kids to get off my lawn. What are you denying this week? I am denying my computer. So you've heard about this, but <laughs> every time I plug in our microphone, it does nothing. Like the nothing happens. The The microphone recognizes it's plugged in. So I can tell that it's not like a physical problem with the port because the microphone gets power from the computer. But it doesn't register as a device. So I spent most of my afternoon trying to figure out why that is. Because I can plug in either my microphone or my mouse, but not both. 
And like, you would kind of need both of those. So it's a laptop so I can get by without it. But I figured out that what it is, is my computer, the webcam in my, in my computer is taking over the USB hub. And like, it's like treating itself like it's a USB hub. So it, it's just messed up. And <clears throat> so this afternoon I was like, fine, forget about it. I'm going to reformat the computer. I'm going to teach it who's boss and then it's going to be fine. So I reformat the computer and I head off to Bible study and I get done with Bible study and I come up here and like what the reformat did is it uninstalled all my software, but left all my files and didn't fix the problem. <laughs> so it's like I was trying to take dominion over my computer and my oh, computer was worst. like thorns and thistles for you. So I'm I'm going to I think I'm probably heading for a new computer. Um, I'm going to do like a real reformat after this, but I'm I've just had enough. It's just I've had enough. Let me just say this. Of all the people I know who have any knowledge about how to troubleshoot computers, you're the one that has the highest level of that knowledge. If you can't do it, there's no hope for any of us. Yeah, that's probably not true. I'm sure there are some people in my audience that are like, oh, yeah, you just got to download the driver from the manufacturer's website and change. I mean, there, there's people that I'm sure if I read out the model number of my computer, which I don't even know off the top of my head, would be like, oh, yeah, I read this article on Microsoft's website about this the other day. But I've just had enough. I think when your webcam starts taking over stuff, yeah, it's time. Yeah, that's actually kind of a little scary. Yeah, isn't it? it's time. Yeah. Okay. That's like NSA style. I'll put the post-it note over it like I have to do at the hospital. <laughs> That's just good practice. Yeah. What about affirmations? Let's bring this up for a change. Okay, yeah, let's. I like that. Let's end on a high note. So I have to do a little bit of traveling this week. And uh, you know that I enjoy music. That's one of the things that, it's just one of the blessings that I so appreciate that God has given us this noise by design. And so I have to travel and I love music. And so what could be better when you need to travel and you love music than tiny instruments. So this week I'm affirming the ukulele. I just oh, think man. everybody should get one. Even if you don't know how to play an instrument, the ukulele is a great one to learn on. It's just got four strings. It's simple, elegant, and beautiful. And you can just throw it over your shoulder and you look super cool. Are you driving or flying? Flying. You're, are you going to bust out the ukulele on the plane? I kind of want to as I carry on uke. I mean, that's I a real crowd pleaser. I feel like everyone is going to hate you. <laughs> They're going to throw you out of the air hatch. It depends, I think, on how good you are. And I'm not saying I'm particularly talented on the uke, but it is a whole lot of fun to play. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love Over the Rainbow on the ukulele? Isn't that kind of like now the quintessential emotional uke-driven song? Yeah, it's very uh, Jason Mraz of you. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's not a compliment. But it, but it well, is very Jason Mraz. He you. is in vogue, so he I'll, is. I'll take that kind of popularity. How about you? What are you affirming? So I have two. One is sort of a, a sort of a joke, but also not. Is I affirm the rains down in Africa. So I have just <laughs> been like obsessed with this song lately, and I don't know why. Wait, the Weezer version? No, 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 no. The the Toto version, the original okay. one. All right. I've just loved the song. I, like the harmonies. This is it interesting. Just, they just it just makes me like warm and happy inside, like a good bowl of soup or something. Have you ever heard that played on a uke? You would love it. No, but I if you do that and then you you play that for me when you come up next time, I will will record it and put it on the podcast. I love it. Yeah, but my real affirmation is uh, the Republican senator from Nebraska 
named Ben Sass. So I don't know. Have you seen any of his speeches from the, the confirmation hearings? I have. Yeah, man, this guy is straight fire. And like, so he, he gave this like 15 minute. I don't really know much about how the, the confirmations hearing work. I'm assuming that each senator gets an allocated amount of time if they want it to do a speech and then they do questioning. And he gave this speech that basically the, the thesis of the speech is our system is screwed up because the house and the Senate are lazy and we don't do our jobs. And so the executive branch and the judicial branch have to do our job because we're not doing it. And it was just this phenomenal, but like semi-aggressive, but also very winsome speech. Like he, he was making jokes uh, across the, the room to Amy Klobuchar, who's the senator from Minnesota. And like you can tell that even though he's opposed to these people in terms of their policy, that actually like he's just a friendly guy who cares about people. And you can tell by the way they interact with him that like they respect him even though they disagree with him. So he, he also – his line of questioning with um, the candidate was just – just spot on. He's talking about like the inherent dignity and image bearing of a, of a human person. And that's where rights come from. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes um, to both of those videos and just go watch them. And you will understand why Jesse and I both independently wrote in Senator Sass for president (laughs) in the last (laughs) election. I don't have any idea if he wants to be the president, but I would totally vote for him. I would too. Um, I think he would be awesome. I get the impression he probably is not interested in that, but he would, he would just be a really awesome president. So if anyone in our uh, podcasting sphere of influence has access to Senator Sass, uh, which is not unrealistic considering that he's a graduate from Westminster, California. True. Um, I would love to have him on the show. So if you have access to him and can make that happen, um, we will be very thankful because I think he would be a great person to bring on to just sort of like talk about an element of the Christian life that we don't talk about that much. Is like, how do we interact in the public sphere? Um, I just think he would have a really unique insight on it. Open invitation. Yes. Anytime he wants. Brother twice Ben, on, hit us twice up. Twice if he wants. We could do a whole new like series sequence with him if he wants. It'd be it'd be awesome. I will play you the uke. Come yes. on our show. Wait, we'll write we, a song we, for him. Before we move on, can I just ask, what was up with the first affirmation with the rains in Africa? That song must really be heavy on your heart right now. You know, I don't know why, but it's been like everywhere lately. Like everywhere on the internet, people are talking about this song. And it's one of those songs that most people have heard like part of, or mm-hmm. they, um, they're familiar with the song, but they've never really like listened to it the whole way through. The music video is hilarious. It's it like is. the weirdest, the weirdest, like sort of story driven, but the story doesn't mat- really match anything in the song except like this vague theme about Africa. Uh, but there's like this lady and there's a library and the bookshelf falls on her and it's it's strange. It's interesting. Yeah. I do have to affirm your affirmation on that though, because the melody and the harmonies in that are just classic. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're really, really crisp. They're good. Although there's that weird part where he's like Kilimanjaro rising up and like this just <laughs> doesn't fit. So the the music is great. The lyrics are not really all that precise they're not yeah they're not super substantive yeah i'm sure that's not reflective of actual reigning in africa but (laughs) i did listen to a version of the song that was sung by elmo today (laughs) like from sesame street so that was pretty cool you have really gone the full breadth and scope of that song haven't you 
and Elmo doesn't speak in first person. He speaks in third person. So he's like, Elmo blesses the rain down in Africa. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Well, there's really no place to go but down from there. Yes. So speaking of which, what I thought would be interesting to talk about with you tonight is this kind of ongoing conversation that we started, I think, at the beginning of this year. And we identified early on in 2018 that we want to do some talking about the law and about the gospel. And we've talked around about those topics quite a bit throughout the course of the year so far. Yeah. And I was thinking this week about the, having the, kind of doing this thought experiment where I'm going to create a Venn diagram with two opposing circles of one being law, one being gospel, and what that overlap might be. What kind of came to my mind theologically was this, the doctrine of the fear of God. Okay. And how that plays out in our lives and our contemporary culture and where we've come from on that. Because basically the reformers had a lot to say about that. I think partly because of the context and the time in which they lived, but also because I think they were particularly concerned that the attitude, the, the life, the Christian piety that was coming out of people's uh, obedience to God was not in part based on the right understanding of the fear of God. So let's start with, I mean, when you hear that, the fear of God, the doctrine of the fear of God, like what kind of jumps to your mind? Uh, well, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, um, right, the okay. whole thesis. So what we'll go there first is um, I'm actually going to read most people when they jump into this, they really they uh, key in on verse seven because that's kind of where the phrase is. Yep. But verses one through seven really are kind of like the thesis statement of the whole book. So I want to just read the whole thing. So starting in verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So like that whole first sequence of repeated uh, infinitive statements to know, to receive, to give prudence, let the wise hear. That whole thing is the introduction to the book. And the summary of all of those points is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So when when I think about the fear of the Lord, I'm coming at this from a presuppositional perspective, right? Is that there's lots of lots of people who think they have knowledge out there. Right. They think they know things, but apart from the fear of the Lord, which is not just like reverence, but it's a, an intimate familiarity and reverence of the Lord, that wisdom is actually foolishness. So the the molecular biologist who thinks he understands the inner workings of the cell, but denies that there's a creator who created that is not only wrong about that, but he's actually denying fundamental things that are revealed by that cell. The organization, the way that the cell works, it cries out that somebody organized and created it. It's not random. So he he's not only wrong about there not being a God, but it makes everything that he says about that cell become wrong because it's built on the wrong foundation. Right. So the, this this verse is so important in terms of our apologetic, in terms of our understanding of the pursuit of knowledge. And I'm not just talking about scriptural knowledge or theological knowledge, but just knowledge in general. And then 
he caught con- he's contrasted with fools despise wisdom and instruction and so in in proverbs fool and atheist are basically synonyms the fool is someone who denies the reality of god and the teaching of god and so there's there's this contrast between the person who fears god and begins to obtain knowledge and the fool who does not fear god and despises wisdom and instruction so i i think that lays the groundwork for the whole rest of the book in a pretty significant way and you're right, I think, to start there. A lot of people do start there. When you think about fearing God, I think the average well-intentioned and knowledgeable Christian is prone to quote from those verses. I sometimes wonder if we understand, as you really articulate it well, what that means. But that is the right place to start, I would say. And I think that you hit it nailed on the head in terms of talking about relationship. Because it strikes me that obviously wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. So for that molecular biologist, he's got, he has all the right knowledge in the sense that he can know the mechanical workings. He can, he can even maybe even appreciate the irreducible complexity of that cell itself, but he lacks complete wisdom being able to apply that knowledge in a way that comports with the truth. And so, but it's interesting, and I love this, that the Bible says to gain wisdom, knowledge, discernment, you must fear God. And that's wholly different than a lot of other relationships that we experience in the rest of our lives. Yeah. Just as I was doing a little bit of reading for this subject, um, Matthew Henry just puts it so well in his commentary. He says, in order to the attaining of all useful knowledge, this is most necessary, that we fear God. We are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given to us unless our minds be possessed with a holy reverence of God and every thought within us be brought into obedience to him. So it's not just that the fear of God is prerequisite to knowledge, but that the fear of God is not only the beginning, but also the the end, the telos of all knowledge is that knowledge is only profitable insofar as it drives us and enables us and empowers us to serve and fear and reverence the Lord. And Luther had so much to say about this that, that's been helpful for me in kind of sorting out or trying to get like a full taxonomy of what that fear means. And so, I mean, you're going to be familiar with this. He distinguished between like servile fear and filial fear. Right. And obviously service coming from the Latin slave and filius from meaning son. So I would describe like servile fear as kind of like a dreadful anxiety because you're frightened by a clear and present danger that's represented by some other person. So it is kind of like a more posture of servitude towards some kind of like malevolent owner and it's reinforced by the threat of danger. And then we can talk about filler fear as the fear that like a child has for a parent. So in that regard, Luther is really driving home this point that a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or mother and who really wants to please them that fear and anxiety is more of offending the one that he loves. And it's not because he's afraid of punishment, but it's because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, at least in his mind, the source of security and love. And I think like in early stages of Christian life, this happens to all of us when we start to process this. I yeah. think there's sometimes it is a battle to overcome like a slavish fear with kind of this nurture and filial fear. And even John Bunyan, he would say like, you know, like the devil is the author of this servile fear. I like this distinction because I think it's helpful because like the basic meaning of fearing the Lord that we read in Deuteronomy is also in the wisdom literature. Like it's the same one. And we're told like that, like you said, that the beginning of wisdom is in fearing the Lord. So like, I feel like we should talk a little bit about those two distinctions because I bring it up only because I actually kind of want to push back on that a little bit and wonder if not we should have some kind of servile fear of God, but in it, we look at it 
through a different prism because we are saved by grace, but right. it still is present. And I understand what Luther is driving at there. It's again, he's a product of his time in some respects, like we all are. But I want to kind of drive into that a little bit and talk about, you know, like the, the adoption and again, how this like bridges or brings together the law and the gospel. So, you know, that's yeah. not like a big task. Let's just, <laughs> let's just crush that real quick. It's not controversial at all. <laughs> yeah. We, we only go to, we just gravitate toward controversial subjects. Yeah. And I, I think I, I think I get where you're going with this. And I, I think you're probably right is that we at times think that this, um, this idea that we're either sons or we're servants, that there's this mutual exclusiveness between those two things. And I'm just not sure that that's biblical because in the scripture, of course, we're made servants of God. And so that puts us in a different relationship. We're made sons of God. And, you know, there's language about how um, we become sons in the master's house. Like we're, right. we're, we're not the same as servants like we were. But that's kind of a, almost like a consummate eschatological concept where we still are bond servants of the Lord. We're still bound to his will and obligated to obey it, but our obligation to obey it is now driven from a different motivation, even though there's still the same obligation. And I think that's something that we often miss. Um, and, And that does get to this concept of law and gospel because a command is always law, right? And this is one of the, this is, my suspicion is the reason you're pushing against this is because you're looking at it in Luther and this is the reformed brotherhood. So (laughs) there's a difference. I mean, there's a difference. Law and gospel is definitely a concept in reformed theology, but there's a difference in the way that the reformed are, are positioned in response to the law and the way that Lutherans are Lutherans. The law is gone. It's abolished. Uh, The law no longer has any force. And that's not to say they're antinomians, but the law no longer is binding in the way that it is. So in, in reform circles, we kind of talk about new covenant theology and that's kind of a theological antinomianism, but um, that's newer to the reform perspective, but the Lutheran perspective in a lot of ways really does sort of take that same approach that the new covenant theologians do. They just don't do it in a covenant framework. Right. So the old, the old mosaic code is gone. It's, it's set aside and abrogated. And now we're under the law of Christ. And where I think that this becomes different is that the reformed hold to a third use of the mosaic law, a third use of the law where, you know, we're, we're no longer under the law as a taskmaster. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law, but we still are under the law as the rule of faith and life. And so there is this, still this, um, we're still covenant servants as much as we are heirs to the kingdom. Right. I totally agree with that. That's exactly kind of my train of thought on that. The law is no longer the means of justification, but still the required pattern of our lives. So I get really uncomfortable when others tend to just throw it out or treat it as if it's totally outmooted. Because if we really have a healthy adoration for God, we still should have an element of the, that the knowledge of God can be just downright frightening. I mean, right. that's what Hebrews 10 says, right? It's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So as sinful people, I think we have every reason to fear God's judgment, even as Christians. And I would actually go as far to say that's still part of our motivation to be reconciled with God. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Right. Even, even yeah. as we sit on the side forgiven. So I came across, to your point, uh, Samuel Bolton, this, you know, Puritans, like just 
are amazing. I mean, there's no better <laughs> turn of phrase. I know how they think to say they're just, just keep giving the Puritans points for what they say and how it's like there are, they are our eternal contemporaries. But I tweeted this out earlier this week, but this is from Samuel Bolton who said, the law sends us the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty in being justified. And I just thought that is like a beautiful summation because yeah. when I was thinking about this and going back into looking at the Mosaic law, you know, especially if you're reading the NIV, if you examine the scriptures concerning the, the use of the word fear, sometimes you're going to see it translated as reverence and other times you're going to see it as fear. And one of those interesting verses where you kind of get some of both, so to speak, is Exodus 2020. So Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So what I love about this is there's this amazing contrast. So it's drawn between being afraid, don't do that, and properly fearing God, definitely do that. Yeah. And, and so there's this kind of this wonderful juxtaposition where I think there is even there, like this, it's prescient, there's this like law and gospel even coming to dwell even in what Moses is saying. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's an interesting passage. Um, I haven't studied it in depth, but it it does seem like um, there is this shift in what it means to be afraid of the Lord. Right. So, well, I think you're right that we still we still have every reason to respect the gravity of judgment that we deserve. There's also this element that we no longer have to be afraid of that judgment because Christ has borne it on our behalf. So, but that's still, there's still a fear of judgment that is good and right and proper because it, 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 it comes with the recognition that we are still sinners, that there's still a battle, that there's still a fight to be had. Amen. And that although the decisive blow has been laid to the, to the enemy, it's still the case that that enemy is still fighting. So we can't act as though there's no fear of sin and no fear of judgment because even Christians, although will never fall under the final ultimate judgment of the Lord, the Lord still judges us and still, still there's still consequences for our sin. So it's not as though I can sin and there's, there's zero temporal consequences that come about. And I'm not even talking about, um, consequences in sort of like the natural results language. There are still sometimes punitive punishments, I think, that God issues temporally in order to bring us back to Christ, to bring us back to holiness and to show us the gravity of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, that's where I think the servile fear is still appropriate, but through a different prism, like you were saying, because... It, for the Christian, it's basically now a fear of what might have been rather than what is. Right. It's a fear of what would come were we not in Christ. And I think without that kind of fear, there can be really no true love because the love of our Savior is basically proportioned to one's horror of that from which you've been rescued and saved. Yeah. And so we've seen like, if you look throughout history, how strong are the lives that are really suffused with that kind of love? They're brave lives, not because the realities of life have been ignored, but because they have been first faced. I mean, those are the lives that are founded upon the solid foundation of God's grace. I can say, here I stand and I can do not otherwise. So I think that's where I'm worried that kind of contemporary evangelicalism is missing out on that when we become cavalier by just saying, well, 
we need to fear God in a way that he's kind of just as our father, or like kind of like a, a holy or spiritual grandfather, where we should want to please him. But if we just fall short through no fault of our own, it's really not that big a deal because really he's just going to forgive us anyway. I think we need to kind of continually, like you said, be reminded that the law is not over us anymore, but is still the pattern that God requires of our lives. And I, I just yeah. don't see a lot of like preaching like, hey, this is still the rubric in which you need to live. It's just that as we've talked about freedom, now the Christian is the only free person to actually obey because the, the natural man cannot do anything good, can do no good apart from God. And so really the free person is the one that has now been enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live under that law and do what it requires. Yeah. So Jesse, if I was trying to get my head around a big biblical theme like law or sin, what kind of resources could we maybe suggest to help someone with that? I am so glad you asked that, Tony. One resource that's fantastic that's been a wonderful supporter of the podcast is Zondervan's new NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, which is fantastic because it does a really great job at kind of uniting all of these themes, these systematic theological lines throughout the entire scripture. It's just a really nice resource to kind of give you the grand arc of God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout the scripture. Yeah. And it's, um, it's written by a really world-class team. So DA Carson is the general editor. And as I mentioned last week, he's just a, a, a world-class new Testament scholar. Um, and his, his background and his influence and his experience in serving on editorial boards in Bible production is pretty widespread. But he also leads a team of over 60 scholars who have not only um, produced the study notes and things, but have also been involved in assembling the, the notes, assembling the team, reviewing the articles, all of these things to really make sure that you're getting good vetted resources um, with this study Bible. So it's, it's not... Um, it's not going to be the kind of thing where you, you look through it and all of a sudden you kind of find a note that you're like, how did this make it in there? Right. And in, it, just in case that wasn't enticing enough, it's just pretty. It's a handsome volume. It's all it color. There's a lot of wonderful resources throughout. It's actually a joy to read. It's really easy on the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because of that comfort print uh, font that they use. Yes, it's literally it <laughs> easy on the eyes. It's comfortable to read. I know this, this sounds funny, but it's actually a really well-designed Bible. I will say that yeah. both in its content and its presentation. So everybody should definitely go check out www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com where you can get some more information about this particular text. And you can read three of the 28 articles that are included in the Bible that are written by all kinds of scholars. Yeah, and I think they have some sample pages there too. So you can actually see how the articles are laid out in the midst of and the study notes are laid out, which seems kind of like a small thing, but it can actually be kind of a big deal because a lot of times study notes are distracting because they clutter up the page, but they've gone they've gone the extra step not only in making the font easy to read, but the actual physical layout of the pages is really appealing as well. Yeah, it's great. Everybody should check it out for sure. 
Yeah, and we're actually doing a contest that we're going to run through the end of October. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, you can enter to win one of six copies of this new resource. Uh, and it's the nice leather-bound version. So it's not even the... Yeah, they're uh, beautiful. And not that the not that the hardback version isn't great. That's what I would buy. Um, but this leather version is is like if you want to drive the Cadillacs of study Bibles, that's what this is. <laughs> If Joel Olstein was going to... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not even going to make a joke like that. It really is luxurious, but it's also going to hold up better than a, a hardback paper cover, like a, the cardboard cover yes, paper for sure. hardbacks are. Um, so if you, if you want to get that and you don't want to spend all of the money, you can enter to win uh, a, a copy of that in our contest. We're giving out the word, people. We are. Li- li- literally. Yes, exactly. So here's one thing I want to throw at you that I think is somewhat controversial, although you might not find it controversial. Um, But now that I know how you feel about Jason Mraz, (laughs) maybe you will. So in thinking about this, I'm just kind of getting to the point where I I don't want to run away from the fact that I think it's, it's right and fair for Christians to be able to admit that the law still can motivate our fear of God. Because I think it's a serious mistake to think that Jesus, Jesus separated like theology from ethics or that like, if you remove his theology, like his beliefs about God, judgment, future woe for the wicked, future blessings for the good, that you can leave his ethical teaching intact because, you know, Jesus ethics are rooted in, I think a constant thought of the judgment seat of God. And that's what leads him to say things in my opinion, like if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut that sucker off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, tear that sucker out. Uh, that's my translation. I'm not sure if suckers in the Greek. Um, and so I see like when I'm looking at the way Jesus taught, I see him using the law as a method to rouse men to fear of God, which is where he goes into the whole thing about don't fear the one who can kill the body, but you really need to be worried about the one who can do something to you after that, who has the power to cast into hell. And so I bring this up because we, this sometimes becomes like a common punching bag. But I do think there is still this rising voice in contemporary Christian culture that says we should banish fear from our religion, that it should no, should no longer hold, we, sh- we shouldn't hold before people's eyes the fear of hell. That, that fear has become ignoble, unnecessary, or it's just fear-mongering because we live in a day and age where there's a lot of fear-mongering that's inappropriate and unnecessary. And so I think this can kind of get bundled into that. And that's where we see the kind of this antinomian, branch kind of, I think, growing out into some of our culture. Uh, how far off base am I on that? I don't think you're you're off base at all. Um, and just to sort of put a little bit of weight behind that, um, question uh, 97 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what special use of uh, is there of the moral law to the regenerate? So this is specifically Christians okay. that it's speaking about. It says, although they are regenerate and believe in Christ, be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet besides the general use thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling of it, and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. So what this is saying, it gives a couple... um, the, the previous questions are, what's the use of the fall of the law after the fall? What's the use for um, all men? What's the use for unregenerate men? And what this is saying is that 
although we're not bound to it uh, as a covenant of works, meaning we're not going to be justified by it and we're not going to be condemned anymore by it, it still is there to show us how much Christ suffered right. on our behalf, that he suffered the curse of this law and how how um, how great his work is that he fulfilled it. And because of those things, it increases our thankfulness and we should increase in our care to conform ourselves to it. And that's where most, I think most Christians fail is that they don't realize that although we're not bound to the law for salvation, we are bound to the law as the rule of faith that we are to conform ourselves to. And so neither you nor I would say that the law produces any ability in us to fulfill it. For sure. But the Holy Spirit does produce in us an ability to obey the law. And that's a good and, and God-honoring thing for us to strive after. Even though we can't in our own power accomplish it, we don't have to trust in our own power. Right but on. there are lots of voices in evangelicalism, even voices that don't hold unorthodox theologies outwardly, who would push against this and kind of chafe against this, that the law has any sort of um, binding nature or binding force on us. Um it can be really, really a problem. And it's caused a lot of issues in reform circles in pretty recent history. Right. And I think that's a great point because we're not divorcing this from practical behavior. I think that is the problem that when you live in such a way where you just totally jettison the law without making it the grounds for, again, the pattern of living such that even reveals the fruit of the spirit in your life. Again, now you have this ability to actually come under the law in the sense of obedience through Christ. What happens is we just end up shipwrecking our lives right? because we're prone to behaviors that would support this view that it's not necessary to actually live under the standard. So I bring that up because this is what's crazy is if we can agree that Jesus used that as a method sometimes and often to show what was required. And then this beauty, as you just presented it, clearly I should have just stopped talking. You should just read like the entire catechism because that was far <laughs> better than what I just said. But if we can agree that, yeah, this is how Jesus explained it. I just don't understand how those who can make a claim that this is not true can appeal to Jesus because Jesus did insistently employ the motive of fear. And if you shoo altogether that motive in religion, you are in striking contradiction to Jesus. Yeah. And so even let's pick on somebody because this is a little bit easier, I think, to flesh out in terms of like behavioral stuff, because I want to think about this practically. I think we look at Tulian and right. he is often an example, not just because we like to use him as our hobby horse, so to speak, but because he really epitomizes a particular view on this, a really strong antinomian view. And here's what's wild to me. Even if you want to throw out the the Old Testament law and say, that's no longer relevant. I do not need that to be in love with Christ. I do not need that to enrich my understanding of relationship with God. Let's just, in sheer terms of insanity, grant that. What I have trouble understanding is the filial aspect of the fear of God how we could want us to be, how we want to please God, fearing him as the one that we want to make sure that we are obedient to and showing our loving kindness by that obedience, how we could say the mantra of free to fail comports with having a filial understanding of what it means to fear God. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that that's exactly it, is that 
men like Tulian, um, and and I'll I'll probably lump in some others that m- you might not. Let's do it. People in the new the new covenant theology branch of things. Okay. So that would include, in some ways, um, people like unfortunately like D. A. Carson. People like Tom Schreiner, in some senses, people like John Piper on certain sure. elements of it. Um, there is this, um, there is this lack of fear of the Old Testament law because how can you fear something that's been abolished and abrogated? Right, right. So if you if you think that the Old Testament law has has no force and now we're only under the law of love or the law of Christ which which includes some of the same things as the old testament law the old moral law but if if that old moral law is no longer there then how can you fear it so i don't think any of those guys Tulian would but i don't think any of the other guys would explicitly say they no longer fear the law of the lord and and what does it really mean to fear the law of the Lord, if not to fear the Lord himself, because the force of the law is not in the law itself. It's in the law giver and in the judge who judges those who break the law. So, so fearing the law, feel it, fearing the Lord, those are really one and the same thing. So if we, if we take the sting out of the law such that it holds no force, then what we're saying is that God no longer morally holds people accountable anymore. And that's just not, that's not somewhere that you can go if you want to read the new Testament, honestly. Right. I totally agree. That's why I keep ending up with this image in my head of this Venn diagram of one circle law, one circle gospel, and the overlap being the fear of God as we define that. Right. One of the other interesting things that I see as kind of an offshoot of this, and I'm really curious for your your positioning on this, is that I would subject as well that the jettisoning jettisoning the fear of God is also dispensational in kind of the strict sense. Because if we take the idea that the fear of the Lord is a phrase of Old Testament piety, nobody's going to debate that. We'd all say, yeah, that's true and undeniable. But often fearing God has been held up as a characteristic of Old Testament piety as distinguished from New Testament piety. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I haven't seen dispensationalists say that um, directly. I'm not aware of any specifically. I'm sure they're, that they're out there. I just haven't read it myself. It's like but an I, effective dispensational kind of yeah. slant. And not I necessarily think he, an implicit one or explicit I think, one. I think you're right because any, I mean, any system that divorces the law, the eternal moral law from God's eternal nature. So another way to, another way to put this, um, I don't think I'm saying anything heretical here, but, um, it was wrong to murder before there was ever a creature. Right. Right. So, so that the axiom, you shall not murder was true in eternity past when all there was, was God, because that axiom is rooted in the fact that God is life and life is inherently good because God is life. And so to take life is, um, an affront and offense to God's nature, right? So, so all of the moral law is rooted in God's nature itself. It's not, it's not one in the same thing. It's not in a divine simplicity sense, but the moral law cannot be divorced from God's moral nature. And any system that makes the, the moral law to be transient or temporary has to do that. And so the fear is you're now fearing the law of the Lord, re- not recognizing that that is one in the same thing as fearing the Lord himself. So dispensationalism, new covenant theology, 
I think Lutheranism, which does the same thing, Roman Catholicism, which sort of replaces the moral law with a, a sacramental penance system. Right. Um, all of those things that divorce God's law from his nature. And Sinclair Ferguson makes this point in um, The Whole Christ, that antinomianism and legalism are, are kind of kissing cousins because they both divorce the law from God's nature. And it re- ends up in these two different things. Either we think the law is something that can, can force us into God's good good graces, which is a weird phrase, or we can, uh, we can divorce the law from God in such a way that it, it, he can, he no longer obligates anyone to it. Those systems all end up in the wrong spot. They all end up denying the fear of the Lord. Right. Yeah. And that's why I find this wonderful uniting in a proper understanding of the fear of God, which is complex to understand. I'm I'm not taking anything away from the fact that this is in many ways hard for us to wrap our brains around because we end up in extremes and then we're trying to understand where does fear come into play. And when we speak about the gospel, especially when we're speaking with unbelievers and we're trying to do so in a presuppositional way, how do we bring that into bear? So this, this is why Jesus is so incredible because he came to deliver us from fear. So we're not talking about fearing God in the way that there's a clear and present danger of our being torn asunder, though that would have been what would have been if we were not in Christ. But he came to deliver us from that fear. But here's what's so amazing to me is he didn't do that by concealing facts, which is a lot of times where fear gets resides. He didn't paint this false picture of a complacent God who should make a compact with sin. I mean, he did not encourage flattering illusions about the power of man. I mean, Jesus did not leave the realm of divine justice as it was and establish it in opposition to the realm of love. And I think that's what I have a problem with when we try to bring in opposition into those, these two categories. He basically introduced unity into the world by his redeeming work, uniting these things, hence that Venn diagram in my mind. So I think there's just like so much lovely, deep mining to be happened, to happen here, to be happened, to happen here. (laughs) And uh, it's just too bad because I think there is this kind of growing sense that the idea of imposing any sense of fear on God's people is wrong because we quote verses like, you know, perfect love casts out fear, but that's, that's taken completely out of context. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as we're wrapping up, I, I think maybe let's just lay it out there. Someone who says that Christians don't need to fear God is just explicitly contradicting Jesus. Categorically wrong. Like categorically saying Jesus is mistaken. And I'm just going to read one one passage here out of Matthew, uh, Matthew 10, starting in verse 26. It says, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus says to Christians, to people that are following him, that he would send out as his disciples... Fear God. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both your body and your soul. Now, if you flip that around and you pull Tullian's card, well, we have nothing to fear from God. Well, Jesus seems to think otherwise. Jesus seems to think that we should still be afraid of the one who can destroy our body and soul in hell. And that's not Satan. I know a lot of Christians read that and they think that that's talking about Satan. It's not. It's not talking about Satan. Satan is not the jailkeeper of hell. 
Satan is a inmate in the same eternal torture prison that non-Christians go to. Right on. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it is that, that we have to understand that God is not a puppy dog, right? He's not, he's not a fluffy little puppy dog that we just pet who, um, who gives us what we like and sort of sits on our lap and makes us feel good about ourselves. Right. He is a, he's a person who will punish those who do wrong. Right. Paul frequently warns people that certain kinds of people who engage in certain kinds of immoral acts will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's, there's vice lists all over the place. I think almost every one of Paul's letters has some sort of statement with a vice list that says these kinds of people, people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he was writing those letters primarily to Christians. So I just think, you know, we can dance around it and we can talk about it, but in order to have this idea that, that we shouldn't, we should only have a loving reverence for God and not recognize that he, um, although he has promised not to, and, and Christians can be assured, not saying we can't, but he could still and can still destroy us. Right. He has no reason not to. Right. Other than the fact that he has been gracious to us. Yes. His covenant so promises. Our assurance is in the fact that he has been gracious to us, not in some sort of um, existential idea that God's hands are tied and he can't punish us for sin anymore. Yes. Well said. It's definitely a grave error to imagine that the new covenant in contrast to the old, has replaced the fear of God with the love of God. And before mm-hmm. we assume that that tension exists between fear of God and love of God or between fear of God and faith in God, we need to just go back and, like you said, examine the scriptures because Psalm 130 is just replete with all kinds of acknowledgments of this, especially verse 3 and 4, which reads, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with right. you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I mean, it's really particular language. I mean, that's expressing... Yeah. A relationship. And one of the last things I wanted to bring up, because this is kind of like more your domain of expertise, is I was thinking about how presuppositional, how native this is to us in the sense that we kind of just get this. It's almost like hardwired. Because when we jump into the realm of science fiction, this is where I'm out of my depth now. But like, say you watch a really, what's a really good alien movie that you enjoy? Aliens? Predator? I, I don't know. I don't really like okay. those kinds of movies. But Well, I'm trying to think of like something that's a really good sci-fi movie where when you watch it, there's a sense of fear or dread, so to speak, with the, the alien characters because they're otherworldly. They're not like right. us. We get a sense of their transcendent beyond. And you get that clear perspective when you read, of course, the Old Testament and the Israelites are interacting, especially through Moses with God. And I just want to make sure that like we don't lose that now, that God is still otherworldly, yeah. uncharted, untamed. He's fire. He's all the things you're talking about. And it's only again by his grace that we are able to come before him and not have to have the clear and present danger, the anxiety, the dreadfulness that comes with that. Yeah. But it's not to say that because of that, we shouldn't therefore still fear him in an almost servile sense, because without that precious blood of Christ, we would be exactly in that kind of clear and present danger. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably a good um, a good word to end on. And I guess what I would just encourage our listeners to do this week is just to reflect on this a little bit, because this isn't something that you can think your way into, right? This this really has to be an existential 
understanding that's drawn from a deep study of the scripture. Sure. So read Psalm 119. I mean, I know it's long, but sit down and read it. It'll take you probably 15 or 20 minutes to read the whole thing, but sit down and read it because the law is something that is to be central to the life of the Christian, not as a means of salvation, but as a rule of life. But anytime you have a rule of some sort, there are problems if you step outside of that rule. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to have the rule. So just take some time, reflect on what it means to, to fear the Lord and to serve the Lord, because those two things are, are much more closely related than I think we probably realize. Totally agree. This is not a doctrine that's just for armchair theologians. I think this is the thing that the Holy Spirit uses so that he can affect into our lives some behavioral changes when we really meditate on what it means to come before God with a holy dread that's both servile and filial. They're equally important, in my opinion. And I guess my hypothesis is that's really what I think would help to unite what seemingly is disparate in the law and the gospel. And I think there's some beautiful overlap there. So, I mean, people want to call us and tell me that I'm just totally off base what is the number that they could dial that they're quickly trying to take down right now so they can leave us a voicemail? 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. You can also email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com, um, and we'd be happy to take some of those emails. Again, we prioritize voicemails for our question cast, but we do try to respond to uh, emails and stuff when we can. We love your voicemails. You probably are tired of hearing our voices. So get your voice in this cast. Yes. And get don't forget to, don't forget to check out the website reformbrotherhood.com slash contest for a chance to win one of six of NIVs of the new NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. <laughs> we are so smooth. We're so good at this. 104, baby. Crushing yes. it. Yeah. Maybe by the time we get to 200, we'll stop stumbling all over ourselves. Yeah. It, this is what gives us character. Is, is that what gives us character? No, but no. that's <laughs> what people like say. Nice say. Yes. That's like, have you ever noticed that like when you don't want to do something or like you want to trick someone into doing something, you know, they don't want to, you say like it gives them character or it'll put hair on their chest, like eat your vegetables. It'll give you character or like right. just, you know, learn to change your own tire, do your own oil change. It'll, it'll give you character. Yeah. It doesn't give you character. It just makes you cranky. <laughs> Well, well, on that note, (laughs) (laughs) take us out of here, Jesse. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Three boys, she's waiting there for you.